This is the Dish Happens Podcast on the Jennifer Tebow Radio Channel. We bring sports flavor to your ear, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time style. Join us each week as our guests and hosts deliver GOAT Talk to you. This is where it all happens. And now get ready for your hosts, Chris Dishman and Jennifer Dr. J. Tebow. Hello, and welcome to the Dish Happens Podcast. Brought to you by GoSkills.com. I'm Coach Chris Dishman. And I'm Jennifer Dr. J. Tebow. And this is Coaches Week. (sighs) (laughs) Thank you for (laughs) the audience applause. Because surely when the team runs out, aren't the the fans are cheering for the coaches, right? Of course, now that I'm coaching. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they are. Of course they cheer for the coaches. It's all about the coaches. All about the coaches. Well, kind of. Not not really, but thanks to the coaches, we get a chance to get the championships and big wins and everything else. In in part. Thanks in part to the coaches. All right, so Go Skills is honoring coaches this week. And I personally love, love, love that because – I have a lot of love and respect for all the coaches that have passed through my life. And you are now Coach Chris Dishman. And so I thought it'd be great for us to take some time on today's podcast to talk about how you became from athlete Chris Dishman to coach Chris Dishman. When I retired in 2000, I didn't know really what I wanted to do or what direction I wanted to go. And um, so for... Three to four years, I followed the rodeo circuit. I was uh, involved in cutting horses with my friend Donnie at, at Detalk Ranch there in uh, uh, Houston. I followed the rodeo circuit, and then I started training guys to get them prepared for the combines. And then once I started training guys, uh, I said, okay, I, I like this. You know, Alonzo Highsmith, another great friend of mine, is now the football ops there at the Cleveland Browns. He had some guys he wanted me to train, and I started training those guys, and I was like, okay, I kind of like this coaching thing. And uh, the more I trained, the more I liked. Then I reached out to a great uh, friend who had ties with there, Charlie Cashley, who was the GM of the Texans. Um, Him and I went back with the Redskin days. So I reached out to him and told him I wanted to coach. And he suggested I go with the NFL Europe first, to make sure that's what I want to do. He also said, told me that you know that coaching is long hours, less pay, and that uh, if that's what you want to do, then go over there and, and make sure. Then I went over to NFL Europe, coached Berlin Thunder uh, for one year, one season, and and I think it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life because uh, going over there gave me the perspective of coaching. You know, Rick Lance was the head coach. Jim Tom Sula was the defense coordinator. And Coach Tom Sula and I used to sit down in the basement and draw cards all for the next period, run cards, pass cards, everything for the uh, practices. Okay, I'm going to stop you there because now, you know, my sport was gymnastics. We didn't have cards. <laughs> what are cards? <laughs> cards is is what you had to draw um, back then of, of the offense that you think you're going to see your opponent is going to do. So when you have your scout team run, they had the cards. They knew exactly what routes to run, what plays to run, how to block and everything like that. All right. So for the non-football people, uh, when you see on TV the coaches is, is, is at the board drawing the X's and the O's, I take it the cards are the real version of yes. those X's and O's? Yes, <laughs> okay. Yes. 
All right. All right. So you went over this really quickly. Somehow you went from cutting horses to training NFL prospects. Okay. I think that's fascinating in and of itself. But people don't realize you're from Kentucky. So, like, horses are just a part of your blood in more ways than one? Oh, yes, it is. You know, my granddad was a jockey. I had uncles who trained horses, but they used to train the high high price horses and run and uh, ride the high price horses, which is the thoroughbreds. I didn't have enough money for those, so <laughs> I decided to go into quarter horses. Well, to cut the horses. Now, you had a grandfather who was a jockey? Yes. All right. But you outgrew the idea of being a jockey, like, from the time you were about three or four years old, oh, I take yes, it? Oh, yes, by, <laughs> by, by then, <laughs> yes. Because, yeah. I mean, they're little. Well, my granddad was 4'11". Um, I took the height after my mom's side dad. He was 6'6", so all my height came from him. All right. So you took this height. 13 years NFL, three years, you're going kind of back to your roots a little bit, being around horses. Yes. And Alonzo Highsmith, your former teammate, yes, and says, hey, I need you to take your expertise and train these guys. What did you see? Like, you, you, I've heard you talk about this before in other forums, this coaching bug. What did you see when you were training the guys that made you say, I want to be involved in a bigger way? Well, one of the guys approached me. It's like, well, Coach, I really didn't backpedal in high school or college. And I I was kind of puzzled. I said, you had to. He said, no, I really didn't backpedal. And which I said, would you just play bump and run all the time? Because in college, I never backpedal either. I just played bump and run. You know, Rod Wilson was on the right side. I was on the left side. And we was, you got that cat, I got this cat, and let's cover him and go. <laughs> and... um so he said, no, we just played off. And um, I was like, well, how are you going to play off technique without backpedaling? But long story short, the guy that then took me into coaching. I said, we, you can't just do that and try to cover every route. So I just got the coach's bug that way. And like I said, I'm I'm glad I did. All right. So you saw some, some technique that needed the Chris Dishman polishing. So Coach Chris Dishman was born. You went to Berlin, you came back, and then you were just in. Yeah, I, I was all in in Berlin, you know, and then I took a Division three school job down there at Menlo College, uh, coached the DBs for one year, then I was able to coordinate the second year, which was a blast. And then from there, my um, I went over to the San Diego Chargers and coached the defensive backs there, and then to Baylor, with the safeties over there in Baylor, and like I said, and now it's just been a blast. 14 years later, I just can't believe I'm still coaching. Well, that's awesome. So now I've heard your coaching stories, and I'm not going to bust out the team that this happened with, but did I hear this right, that sometimes coaches sleep in the office? Like, they just don't go home. <laughs> well, well, yes, because you realize that sometimes we are. We are there by 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we probably stayed about 11.30, 12 midnight, and some coaches probably stayed longer than that, and they figure that, okay, they're 30 minutes away. If they get in the car, drive home, uh, it's a half-hour drive. By the time they go to sleep, it's another half-hour. Then they have to get up about 5.36 to come back over there, so those four hours sleep that you have, you might as well just sleep in the office, and a lot of coaches do that. Wow. I don't think people even begin to come close to realizing that there are some people literally living 
at their jobs. Right, right. And some, some of the corporate guys, y'all should try that. <laughs> try sleeping in your office and see how you feel the next couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> probably my back would hurt. Uh, I would probably be sleep on the floor. You know, corporate offices generally don't have training tables and other very nice places to go to sleep. Well, well, you can have enough room in your uh, studio right now, Dr. J. You possibly can go sleep right now in your studio and wake up the next morning and do your cast and see. Well, I will say this. I will say this. When I was a gymnast, uh, my coach, shout out to Coach Bill Austin, my coach used to have a two-week training camp, and he wanted us to sleep in the gym. So we had to bring our sleeping bags. There was no such thing as a cushy anything. My coach was what you call old school. And... There was something special about watching the sun go down and watching the sun come up through the windows in the gym. It, it kind of develops the place that you love, that you protect, that you defend. Um, I talk about Bill like we talk to each other every day, and I, I haven't seen him in 25 years. But we still talk uh, on social media, the power of social media. Uh, but there's something about the connection of just immersing yourself into your sport or your profession and is that like i think the guys that probably sleep in the office they probably wear their rings all the time their championship rings because it means so much to them if they've dedicated that amount of time well yeah it's it's the whole organization when we talk about championship rings everyone gets a ring and everyone deserves a ring and we get to that point in your life where the last game you're a champion that's why you see the tears it's the tears of the guys of joy it's the tears of all the hard work they have done through their lives. You know, everyone just don't wake up and win a ring. You know, it's not that lucky. If so, everybody be playing the sport and everybody be winning rings. So it's the dedication, it's the it's the practices, it's the hours that you put in, it's the hours away from your family. Because when you guys are joining the games on Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day, those guys are practicing, you know, in order for you to enjoy those type of games. And I think that that brings another point, and we've talked about this before. Um, People criticize professional athletes for the amount of money that they make. And my argument has always been, well, they started playing at five years old, six years old, unpaid, (laughs) developing their skill, unpaid, putting in hours, their blood, sweat, and tears into the sport until they finally got to a point, maybe 15 years of unpaid preparation, they finally got to a point where they got paid. I think their paychecks should be almost priceless, but since it can't be priceless, I like the high price tags that are on uh, athletes because to get to that level, you've, you've done a lot. Now you fast forward and you develop, you, I'm going to focus on you, you've developed this level of expertise where you started playing very young unpaid right (laughs) developing your skill your passion for the sport then you competed at such a high level as a pro player for 13 years you take that experience which is unique since the average uh, playing time for NFL is about three and a half years now so you had 13 you take that and you get pro bowls and make an all pro and your team captain and you're all of this and then you remix that into being a coach. Call me crazy. That's like doubling down on priceless for what you can pass on to the next guy, to the guy that just started getting paid to do what he does. I I don't know if people really like add that up. That what a coach is, what a coach brings to the table is years and years. I mean, you've been coaching for fourteen. You played for. You played professionally for 13. Right. 
You played four years in college. I consider that in some way paid because you you got a scholarship out of it. So we're talking 30 years of this professional level, high level elite football experience that you bring to the table. That's Well, now coaching, I see a different aspect in coaches. As a player, I didn't see that. And players would never see, excuse me, players would never see what coaches go through or been through. They only see that when they come there in the morning, that the stuff is there. When they leave at night, they have the confidence that when they come back, that the coaches will have everything done. And that's what all they need to see as a player. But as it, now that I've been coaching, I can see that um, the work, the dedication, the commitment you have to have to become a, a, a good coach. You just can't go get to the office at 9 o'clock and leave at 5. It's not a 9 to 5 job. If that's what you want, a nine-to-five job, you don't get into coaching because it's not a nine-to-five job. So I'm going to quote your former teammate, Ernest Givens, when he told you uh, fairly recently, I'm not telling you what I heard. I'm telling you what I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you get a chance to give to give these guys. Is not, it's not just your coaching expertise is from a player lens as well. And I think that's that's very unique. Do you think they listen to you more? Because you were a former player? I don't know if they listen more or less. Um, like I said, as a coach, what you try to do is guide them in the right direction. you got to realize that everyone learned different. you got to understand that uh, Johnny may be look like he's not paying attention, but hear everything. Whereas Jimmy, looking at everything and writing down everything, but not understanding everything. <laughs> so you got to have that in-between balance of, Okay, who understand, who don't understand. And, and it shows. It shows on the field. It shows in practice. So that's where your patience got to come in because you can go over everything on the board. You can watch it on the film. You get out to practice and you tell them exactly here's what we're going to do tonight. You get out to practice, there's something to do totally opposite. You're like, okay, maybe I didn't explain that right. Then you go back and explain it again. And then if they don't get it again, you're like, okay, well, maybe I'm not, somehow I'm not explaining it. But nine people can get it and one person don't get it. You need all 10 to get it. So you had this unique coaching challenge. I always, I think I, when I look at your career, I think there are different challenges at every team, right? Different things for you right. to grow and develop as a coach. You just came from coaching with the Montreal Alouettes in the Canadian Football League. So now you literally have the check the box for every professional league uh, that's out there. But what people don't think about, because you see a lot of guys that you remember their names because they played in college in the States, a lot of the team is comprised of Canadian players that speak French. They speak a different language. Well, yeah. <laughs> I would think that's a challenge. It is, but you have also some American guys, you know, on there too, and that's the blessing to have the American guys on there. But like I said, Canadian football was a little bit of challenging at first because I wasn't used to all the motion and moving and coming towards the line of scrimmage. And But once I – got into it and realized that it's just like American football once the motion stop. The same routes, the same runs, everything's the same. And, and those guys up there is trying to do the same thing. They're trying to win a great cup, just like down south, trying to win trying to win the Super Bowl. Everyone's trying to win championships. And as a coach, you're still getting up early, going into the office you early, and you're, still, and you're still writing those cards. <laughs> they may not be physically. Maybe you do it through software now, but there's just all the fundamentals of coaching are – absolutely still there yeah it is technology have caught up to the coaching game which is a positive so i don't have to sit there and draw 100 cards now and i can sit there and do it 
on my laptop or on my computer and, and draw the cards and stuff like that. So the technology aspect of football is growing, which is great. So the one thing that shocked you the most about coaching when you transitioned into coaching? Well, it's actually two things that shocked me the most. I spoke on it earlier. One is the card drawing is when Coach Tom Sula and I had to sit down in the dungeon in the basement and draw cards, the run cards, the pass cards, all that for the next practices. Uh, number two to shock me that I thought that as a player, you only prepare yourself. As a coach, you have to prepare the other 10 to 12 guys who's in the room. And you got to make sure all of them are, pre- are prepared to go and play. And one thing that shocked me the most was that not everybody prepared the same. I'm thinking everybody know exactly what they have to do. I gave you your assignment. I gave you your alignment. Let's go out and do it. But it shocked me to realize that some players, you have to actually walk them through and prepare them through the um, situation so that way they can uh, be able to get it. So they're not all like player Chris Dishman? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. How did that happen? <laughs> what do you tell a player? What do you What do you tell – what does Coach Chris Dishman tell player Chris Dishman who yells at the referee? Well, I will actually let him get it through what he has to do, and then I pull him and bring him to the sideline and tell him shed his – up. Oh, now we can't beep on this one, <laughs> yeah. so you got to pause. I, I beat myself. <laughs> so I would tell them, shut it up and uh, play ball. Don't worry about what things you cannot control. What does Coach Chris Dishman tell the Houston Oilers after that Bills game? Well, <clears throat> the coach would tell them that he is sad for them. Uh, he is hurt for the players of the time and the energy they put in to have it crumble like that. I will, uh, you know, be sympathetic towards the players. And then as a coach, I will go in and look at it on the flight back home and look at the game and see what I have done better to prepare them better. Uh, As coaches, you always take the defeat. You go back in the mirror and look at yourself and see what you have done better. Uh, If it's victory, you always give the victory to the players because it's a player's game. It's not what you've done. It's what they've done. So, and you always just, like I said, give the victories to them, take the defeats, and go back and look at what you have done, what you as a person, as a coach, could have done better to prepare them for that won't happen again. All right. So, you have a lot of great coaches, and we're going to talk about that this week, all week, <laughs> during the podcast. Not on this one. We, you know, we're going to wrap this one up. But I'm telling you, Coach Nick Saban. Coach, well, Jerry, Coach I had, Jerry Glanville, I, come I, on. I had a, some great coaches. Started with our pro coaches, you know, Coach Glanville, uh, Coach Saban in, in Houston, you know, Coach Bettis there, Coach Hayes was in Washington, uh, Coach Mike Nolan, you know, there, um, Pat Thomas, Coach Pat Thomas, Coach Rod Perry also in Houston, Pat Thomas also in Houston. Uh, then I had um, Coach Bennett there at Purdue. And, uh, and uh, my high school coaches, Coach Madrick, Coach Haddock, Coach Campbell. You know, I was very fortunate to have 10 to 12 coaches that cared about me as a person and as a player that pushed me to wanting to be the best. And I'm such a pleaser that I went out each and every day and each and every practice of trying to please them, but realizing that pleasing them would be pleasing myself also. So I was fortunate to have some great coaches who grinded me who made me stay humble, who didn't 
let me get the big head, Buddy Ryan. I have a story or next podcast about Buddy Ryan, how him and I got in a big argument in the sideline. And all of a sudden, you know, I went to his office and he said, you know, told me some things. And I saved that story for next. I'll well, save it for next time because we know that Coach Buddy Ryan was as feisty as they come. Yes, and he while he may have been a certain size, I believe he saw himself as about eight feet tall because yes, that was his personality. Okay, so that's it for today's podcast. But I, I'm wearing another hoodie because I can't get enough of it. People are going to start thinking that all I do is wear goat skills stuff but well we have more than hoodies you know so <laughs> i we know have, we have our beanies we have the t-shirts got the long sleeves i know i'm looking you know, at your our... goat skills shirt right now and i'm wondering where the heck can i get that one why i don't have that one just well, yet well you can go and go skills shop go skills.com and get everything you want and like i said uh, don't take goat as just football or sports related anybody can be a goat you have your mom your dad uh your grandmother your aunties, anybody can be the boat, your sisters, your brothers, anybody who have been that special person in your life who you think is just the greatest of all time, goat me them too. So make sure you can give them something this holidays. Go shop goatskills.com and give them a goat and tell them that how much you appreciate them and love them for being there for you. Even your pe- your preacher or your pastors could be your goat. Absolutely. And, of course, this is Coach's Week, so all week on Twitter, the Goat Skills CO, that's the Goat Skills Twitter account. That account is honoring and shouting out coaches. Yes. So it doesn't it doesn't have to be football. We want to shout them out because I already put my, you know, I put my bid in for Coach Bill Austin for the shout out. Yeah, I see all the pictures you have up right now <laughs> in the studio. So you all make sure that you catch up at GoatSkills.com. That's where you're going to find the podcast, the blogs, the pictures, all things Goat Skills. We appreciate you listening. Anything else? Final words? No, just thank you guys, and please stay tuned for us because we're going to have a lot of uh, fun on these podcasts. All right. Take care. You've been listening to the Dish Happens podcast on the Jennifer Tebow radio channel, brought to you by GoatSkills.com and the Tebow Company. Stay connected to us through GoatSkills.com, Tebow.org, and Apple Podcasts. This is the greatest of all time podcast. You won't want to miss it.